0: I am um, a little emotional this morning, and that's not a normal thing for me, if you know me, quite a stoic individual, um, like uh, books more than feelings, And uh, but I am emotional this morning for a couple of reasons. The first is, um, th- this is my first time actually being at a rooted service, and uh, I started speaking with One and praying with One and confidence and thinking of how BBC could partner with this church when this church was nothing but a concept you know, in honor and confidence in mind. Um, and so to see this and to see God's faithfulness to you is just magnificent. Um, and it's making me quite emotional this morning. And then the second reason I'm emotional this morning is we sang a portion of my favorite hymn, um, which is, It Is Well With My Soul. And we sing those words quite glibly, um, but I struggled to sing them glibly. I don't know how many of you know the story behind that song. Any of you know the story behind the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul? Okay, one or two of you. Written by a chap called Horatio Spafford. And yes, his life must have been hard with that name Um, but that was the name that was assigned to him by his parents and he lived in Boston, Massachusetts in the mid-19th century was a successful attorney and an elder at his local Presbyterian church Um, he decided that he needed a holiday and so decided to go join a preaching tour that D.L. Moody was doing in the UK and so um, was going to go with his family he had already lost his four-year-old son due to scarlet fever he had five kids his son died he had four daughters um, but then got waylaid in a very important criminal trial and so sent his wife and his four daughters across ahead of him to go and have a holiday in Europe uh, where they were going to then meet up in England. And during that crossing, their ship ran into another ship and all four of his daughters drowned. Um, His wife survived. She sent a telegram. She said, um, what did she say? Alive, alone um, when she got there. And Horatio Spafford um, then finished his trial, jumped on the next available ship and as they passed over the spot in the ocean where his four daughters had lost their lives, the captain came and knocked on his door and said, this is the space. And he returned to his cabin and he penned the words to, it is well with my soul. And so when we sing songs like that, we can be tempted to go like, but it's not well with my soul because things in my life aren't going that particularly well. And then we should consider the singularity of the devotion of men who have gone before us like Horatio Spafford. And say, if we have Christ, then we have everything that we need. And regardless of what we are going through, if we are sons and daughters of the Most High, we can say it is indeed well with our souls. So next time you find yourself singing that song, think of Mr. Horatio Spafford and bring a singularity to your faith that says regardless of what you're going through, you have Christ, and so you have a great deal, and in fact, you have enough. Uh, Sunny Bonani Dumelang, how's it? It's good to see you. Um, We'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And as Jono has already said, BBC are going through the text at the same time. Do you know there's actually six churches across the globe going through Corinthians together at the same time? So there's Bryanston Bible Church, there's Midran Bible Church, there's Rooted Fellowship, there's Grace Bible Church in um, uh, East London. And there are at least two churches that we know of on the east coast of the USA using our preaching notes from our little humble preaching team here in Southern Africa to be able to formulate um, their preaching strategy this year overseas as well. So it's a tremendous privilege to be able to spend nine months together in Paul's masterpiece, one of his most incredible works, the the first letter to the Corinthians. Over the last few weeks, here's what Paul has been saying, and then I'm going to jump in the text today. Okay, we're not going to mess around, all right? I'm just going to jump into the text, I'm going to tell you what it says, that's my job, and then I'll get out of your hair, all right? It'll be years till you see me again, because I know it's so protective. Over this pulpit that has taken—it's taken years for me to get you. He's preached the BBC like a thousand times. Our people are just like, "Bring Pastor One back!" I'm like, "But when do I get to go to Roots?" He was like, "One day, my son." All right, and so um, uh, to, to, today's the day I finally get you. But I just—I just, I just want to faithfully. Preach the word. Here's what the text has been saying over the last few weeks. Paul has been warning the Corinthians about the gaps that they have in their life between thought and deed. Now, remember, the Corinthians have been telling Paul, they've been writing to him, and they've been saying, Hey, uh, uh, we're very smart. And so we don't really need you. And Paul has been writing back and he's been asking this question again and again. Do you not know? Do you not know? Do you not know? Now he knows full well that they do know. And so why is he asking them, do they not know? Because they're not acting as if they know. And so he's saying, hey, you've got such high thoughts, you've got such high beliefs about faith, but the way that you live out, the way that you practice this stuff, the the, the, the way that you live your lives shows that you, you don't actually have high thoughts and high beliefs. There's a big gap between what you believe and how you behave, and these gaps are going to have consequences if you are not careful. And so Paul writes this warning to that church. And in fact, to that end, at the end of chapter nine, Paul says, hey, I don't want to live with such large gaps between what I believe and how I behave that somehow I would be disqualified from the prize that is on offer in the gospel. Paul is saying, hey, you know what the world's gonna hate? Is a bunch of hypocrites who keep sharing the gospel but don't live out the gospel. And so then end up being disqualified from the gospel because they never fully believed it in the first place. And if Paul is worried about that, we should be worried about that, right? Because Paul lives out the gospel way more than we ever did. But he says, I'm sober about it. I'm thoughtful about it. I'm careful about the way that I live. And I want the gap between what I believe and, what, and how I behave to close. And yet, friends, how many of us are prepared to live with these large gaps and tolerate them for long periods of time, even if they are wide? And how many of us never give too much thought to the fact that there might be consequences and we might actually end up saying something about what we believe that then people won't believe because they don't think we believe it. They would come back to us with, but do you not know? Do you not know? And you'd say, I do know. And then they'd say, well, then why do you behave this way? Why do you behave this way? That's what Paul is calling us to, a singularity of belief, and behavior. Draw those things together. If for nothing else, it makes you miserable, doesn't it? If you believe a set of things and don't behave in that way, it makes you absolutely miserable. In fact, uh, the, the latest Pew research shows that the happiest people in the world have something that is called congruence. Do you remember congruence from high school maths? I don't. I was on standard grade, okay? But I'm told we were taught it at high school, okay? Congruence. Uh, I, I was at standard grade maths because I thought I was going to play rugby. No one had the heart to tell me, like, oh, are you going to be the ball? Like, oh, ha, ha, ha. How is this going to be possible, all right? And so they just let me live in this delusion of, yeah, don't worry about maths. You'll never use maths, like, except for everything, okay? And so um, I did standard grade maths. So I don't remember congruence. But congruence was when you take two triangles and you say that they are congruent. In other words, they, are, they have similarities, right? In other words, they are close to the same. Uh, uh, what we need is a, a high deal of congruence between our belief and our behavior. We'll never close the gap until we see Jesus and he perfects us. But we've got to live lives that are congruent, that that, that match the things that we say. And pure research shows that people who have a high level of congruence between belief and behavior are the happiest people in the world. And, listen, when churches have a a high measure of congruence between belief and behavior, they are very good evangelists. Why? What's the number one opposition that the world has to church? I'm telling you, it's not even our doctrine yet. It's our behavior. It's our hypocrisy. That's it. We don't even get to the doctrine. They're saying, we'll get to the doctrine if I thought that you even believed the doctrine. But you don't. There's massive gaps between what you believe and how you behave. And so the church is full of hypocrites, all right? Now, by the way, as the church, we shouldn't be defensive about that. We should use that as a recruiting strategy. That's what we do at BBC. Hey, this place is full of hypocrites. If you're not a believer yet, you should join us. It's the safest place in the world. We've got the lowest bar to entry, right? Right? Because everyone's hypocritical. No one fully does everything that they believe. And so you should join the church because it's a safe space. No one will judge you inside the church for being a hypocrite because everyone is like you. Okay, so I've just given you a great recruiting strategy um, for your city. Feel free to use it. But Paul is saying, hey guys, think about it. For your own happiness, for the sake of your witness, but also, also, for the seriousness with which you worship God, close the gap between what you believe and what you believe. And how you behave. Here's how he's going to do it, 1 Corinthians 10. You all with me? You all understand what he's doing? Right, we're trying to close that gap. Look what he says. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. The word he uses there for brothers is adelphoi, which means sibling, all right? Brother or sister, and so that one can be in, in, in either gender. That doesn't mean every time you see a masculine in the scripture, you can change it to a feminine, okay? Father God doesn't become mother God, that's, that's deliberate, but the word adelphoi means sibling, and the ESV has translated that as brothers, but it can mean brothers and sisters, part of the family. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers or sisters, that our Fathers. Now, Paul is at pain st- to remind them that they are part of God's family. right? You don't get to do Christianity on your own, not even on your own in your own generation. It's something that links back to people before you. Yeah, that's what Paul is very clear to do. He calls them brothers, even though they were acting at en- as enemies towards Paul at this time. Isn't that amazing? You know how many times Paul calls the Corinthians at Delphi? It's, it's, it's more than there's chapters in the book. And what are they telling him? We don't need you, Paul. We don't like you, Paul. You're not impressive, Paul. All right, we like Apollos. And what does he call them? Not like, you fools. He calls them Adolfo. Brothers and sisters, you're still part of my family. You're currently wounding me, but you're still part of my family. This is what the gospel does. It makes people who are offensive to each other family in an amazing way. And then he calls the people of Israel their fathers, even though this was largely a Gentile audience. And this is important because I'm going to help you interpret the Old Testament today, just in the next 20 minutes or so. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. What's he talking about? The journey through the wilderness, right? Okay, and so the exodus, the journey through the wilderness, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, And the rock was Christ. Now now listen, how many of you don't you don't have to put your hands up, but how many of you in your daily devotions and stuff, when you get into parts of the Old Testament narrative, you find that really hard to interpret? You're like, how did God even seems listen, he doesn't, but God may even seem to have a different character in the Old Testament to the New Testament, if you're honest, right? Okay, got some honest folk in the room? Right, okay, this is one of the big objections to biblical theology about the thing that the whole thing hangs together. Paul here has masterfully taught us in just a few verses how to encounter Old Testament narrative. It is genius and it is massive and he gives us these beautiful typologies in the Old Testament. He says, they were baptized into covenant with God, and so when they walked through the Red Sea, well, they weren't just walking through the Red Sea out of slavery themselves. They were also pointing forward millennia and saying, hey, one day other people are going to walk through the waters, all right? We love to sing, he calls me out upon the waters, but actually we call to walk through the waters, okay? Sometimes he wants us to sink. That's what he does in baptism. He puts us down at the bottom, and this is a beautiful type. As they're walking through, they're walking into covenant relationship with God, and as we put people down into the waters, we bring them up out into covenant relationship with God. And so baptism is being spoken of even in Exodus. They were given food to eat in the form of manna, Exodus 16, which reminded them of God's faithfulness towards them. What does that speak to us of? The bread that we will partake of later. It it reminds us of God's faithfulness. What does Jesus instruct us to do when he breaks the bread? Do this in remembrance of me it's a reminder of my faithfulness and so the manna was a daily reminder we break bread as a reminder of the faithfulness of god of his kindness towards us they drank the drink of god's gracious provision through a rock that was struck exodus 17 and numbers 20 we drink of the eternal blessing of christ's merciful blood he was struck for us so that we might have streams of living water, you guys don't look suitably impressed, my mind is blown by this stuff, I'm like, oh my goodness, I can trust this thing, I can wade into the deep parts of this thing, I don't just need to stay in the paddling pools of continually reading Romans 8, right? and misinterpreting it, by the way, I can do all things, I don't need to stay there either, all right, because that all things doesn't mean all things, it means I can endure all suffering, it doesn't mean I can run a sub 10 second 100 meters, because I can't. Or do higher grade maths, by the way. And so trust this thing, right? Trust it, it's amazing. Understand its context. Understand how it pieces together. Paul's given us a gift here. This is the school that's called biblical theology. Uh, it's, it's, It's what I did my studies in, how the whole scripture ties together. And so we can bask in that and go, oh, thank you, Paul, for that lesson in biblical theology. And we could conclude the meeting and then go walk through the waters, all right? And have a baptismal service somewhere. I'm sure we could find something. We'll wait for the urns to cool down. Um, we, could, we could do something and we could eat the manna, all right? And we could drink from the rock that was struck and we could say, what a wonderful morning we had together. But Paul's not done. He's saying, I want you to look back. I want you to understand how the whole thing flows. Why? As a warning, as a warning, and so he's setting them up, he's saying there's some parallels between the people of Israel and you, and and I'm telling you this, not just so that you'll feel warm and cuddly, so that you won't do what they did, that's why he's doing it, look here, nevertheless, verse 5, oh, what a verse, remember these are God's covenant people, he loves them, nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. And so none of that generation gets to see the promised land, right? Why? God is not pleased. They're his covenant people. They're experiencing his covenant blessings. They're eating the bread. They're drinking from the rock that is Christ, we're told. But he's not pleased. Why? There's a big gap in what they believe and how they behave while they're in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. God's covenant people, look right at me, desired evil, hey? I don't know about you, that helps me explain some of my wicked heart because I know I'm part of God's covenant people through the rescuing work of Jesus Christ on my behalf. I know, but I also know that most days my heart desires evil. And I've never really known what to do with that tension. Paul's here saying it's part of the human experience. But don't just go with it. Address it. It's a warning. And so here's my first observation today. We should learn from the example of God's people who were privileged but not pleasing. They were privileged by God but they weren't pleasing to God. The the people of God under Moses experienced lots of spiritual privileges, and yet most of them didn't please him. We too, listen, if we are followers of Christ, are enjoyers of tremendous spiritual privileges, but we may be able to be people who participate in the beauty of grace on display in the sacraments or ordinances, and yet we live in a way that is unpleasing to God. And what Paul says is, don't. Don't partake in the ordinances today. Don't eat the manna, don't drink from the rock, and then go live as you please. Don't. Don't. Don't live with that kind of gap. This isn't saying that you should worry about losing your salvation, but it's a strong warning to say that you should live in a way that is more than just an outside and passive appearance of God's covenant people. The people of Israel thought, like, but we're His covenant people. He brought us through the ocean. Now we can do what we want. And Paul says, that didn't please God. And most of them never see the promised land as a result. Now, did they remain his covenant people? Yes. But we should live for more than that. We should live to please him. And this kind of attitude doesn't please him. I got saved when I was seven years old. I've started to describe it differently. God saved me when I was seven years old. And so my grandfather got miraculously saved. He came back with post-traumatic stress disorder from the war. Alcoholic bad man gets miraculously saved. My dad gets miraculously saved. Then my dad preaches a message on the parable of the sower. I can remember it. February 1986 um, in a scout hall in Borario. And as we drive back to our home in Cyril Dean on the other side of town, I tell my dad, hey, dad, I think I'm a sinner. And to my surprise, he he vehemently agrees. All right. And so... Which I thought was a little unnecessary. You know, just the, the vehemence. He could have been like, well, you know, he was just like, that is absolutely, that's the first truthful thing you've said. It um, wasn't like that at all. Go home, tell my mom, she also agrees, okay, and so I can't find an advocate anywhere here. And so then pray with my parents and, 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 and repent of my sin, and Christ saves me. But I, I wish I had a different testimony, but I don't. I then, my parents leave when I'm 19, they go to, they go to the USA. And I've discovered at this point that I can't play rugby, okay, because I'm a hobbit, okay. And so I could play Quidditch or something to mix great narratives, but, but, but rugby, no, okay. And so every time I try to play, I was very good for the four minutes that I was on the field, and then someone folded me up and put me in their pocket. All right, okay. So I was like the Pat Lambie of my day, okay. And so, um, and and so, uh. I then discovered music, and so I got into a band, and so my parents thought it was an excellent idea to buy me, a 19-year-old, and my brother, a 23-year-old, a house in Melville so that we could pursue our musical career while they watched from afar in America. It's just parenting 101, okay? Just, just genius. It did not go well for my walk with Jesus Christ, and yet I knew I was part of God's covenant people and yet I was participating in my local church every week by going, oh gosh, I can't believe I did it again. I'm such a fool. I have such a headache. How did I get here? Um, and, and participating of the bread and participating of the cup. And, and, that's, and that's wonderful because the, the bread in the cup is for sinners, but never making a determination to go and live differently. And I'm now absolutely persuaded that that didn't please God. I was still part of his covenant people, but I wasn't pleasing him in any way, shape, or form. It's no way to live. Why? What does your Christian journey become marked by? Guilt. Guilt. You know the the dangerous thing? Guilt doesn't promote change. It doesn't. Think about when you're on your best diet, when you fall off the wagon, right? Okay? And then you feel guilty. What are you going to do as a result of your guilt? Eat a packet of (laughs) knickknacks. Right? This will make me feel better. Uh, that's what happens. Yeah. Guilt doesn't drive great behavior. Only grace does. Uh, only grace does. It makes you miserable and displeases God. Guys, I just want to press you. Don't, don't raise your hand or anything. But how many of us are actually living like this? It doesn't please him. Look at, look at verse seven. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. Now this is big right here. Paul's going to hone in. He's going to say, at the root of this rebellion, at the root of this large gap, is actually idol worship. Now, some of you are going to go like, oh, brilliant, that's not me, right? You're going to breathe a sigh of relief because as far as you know, you don't have any graven images or statues to foreign gods in your house or on your person right now. Or if you do, you quickly just slipped it out on the side and put it in the lap of the person sitting next to you. Um, You may think you're in the clear here. I don't buy down to some kind of graven image. And so if their issue was idolatry, I don't suffer from that issue. No, 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 no. The command in scripture to, to, to not commit idolatry is the command to have no other gods before me, Exodus 20. It isn't just about graven images. It's about setting your heart and your desires on anything other than God. That's idolatry. Uh, Jesus fleshes this out in Matthew 22. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And so in any area where we aren't loving him with all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our heart, we're prone to idol worship in those areas because we've put something else on the throne of God. And so the call to not commit adultery, uh, not adultery, which is part of idolatry, is a call to not have anything that comes before God in your life. Anything. Oh, now suddenly we start to feel like idol worshippers, right? The church father, Origen, who was North African, by the way, it's important that we study church history and understand that the first, most of the first 400 years of this thing is shaped by North African brothers, okay? Just amazing to consider. And Origen says, what each one honors before all else, what before all things he admires and loves, this for him is God. What each one honors, Before all else, and what before all things he admires and loves, this for him is God. When we moved into our house in Blegari, um, Sue and I uh, bought this place, and, and, and we loved it. And it is, I don't know if you've ever been to show days. Like you get like, you get, it's almost like beer goggles that you get in a club, okay? But it's house goggles, okay? Show day goggles. And, and the estate agent, you don't know what beer goggles is. Gosh, okay, this is a sanctified crowd. Um, and so, uh, never mind, scratch that. We'll edit that out of the recording. There's no such thing as beer goggles, okay? And so, house goggles. And you go in, and the estate agent walks you around, you know, as helpful as the estate agents are. And this is the bathroom. You're like, Really? Is that what that is? Okay? And so um, they take you around the house, and this is the kitchen. Ah, oh, I would have got those two confused. So I'm really glad you told me because that would have been awkward, okay? Um, and and so you go around the house, but everything looks amazing. So we bought this house and, and, and we overlooked some things, and it was, but we loved the house. When we moved in, we started to notice some things around the house that we hadn't noticed, right? And one of the things that we started to notice was that the owner of the house previously was kind of a syncretistic, calling all pockets faith guy, okay? What the world would call open minded. And so there were crosses on the wall. There were Hindu shrines. There was a Buddhist shrine. Okay, and there were statues all over the place. And so I went down into the garden for the first time. I noticed a Buddhist statue with a shrine in the garden. I was like, "That's probably going to have to go." Um, <laughs> uh, and then I started noticing hanging off the trees were crystals. And then there were these these little scrolls tucked up and stuffed into the doors. Okay, so every door, we had to go find these suckers, okay, and like pray it away, but like whatever they said, I don't know, but I pray against it in Jesus' name. And so um, we had to find this thing. I was just about going to give my house a baptism, right, okay, to try and cleanse this thing out. But, but you know, Sue and I, we, we, we went right through the house, we went through every, we found stuff all over the place. And we were so proud that we had cleansed our house of idol worship, now we could set it up the way that we like, where we could pick the room right in the middle and purchase an elaborate flickering box on which demigods would dictate to us what our worldview should be, and I would gather our whole family together at night for worship, and we would give of our money every month so that the flickering supernatural box could tell us what to believe. And what to do with our life. But at least idol worship was cleared of our house. It was free to be Jesus and Jesus alone. You see it? And so we make this idol worship thing so exterior to ourselves. And yet we've got things that our heart's affections are given to. That take all of our time, all of our talent, all of our treasure, all of our hope, all of our stress, all of our anxiety. We give it to these things. Because we're idol worshippers. Let's see how it plays out. Verse 7. As it is written... The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That play is a euphemism. They they rose up to sin, right? We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. Now, Paul is again teaching us how to interpret our Bible. He combines Exodus 32 and Numbers 25. In Exodus 32, the people get tired of waiting for Moses to come down off of the mountain, and so they persuade Aaron to make them a golden calf. It's an amazing story of syncretistic living. Let's read it quickly. Just look at this from verse four of Exodus 32. He received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. Remember, they've got daily manner. They're currently surrounded by a cloud of God's presence. Moses has been gone for a little bit. And and they're like, let's make another god. All right? That whole Red Sea thing, that was amazing. But we need another one. All right? We we need another one, one that we can, how about one that looks like a cow? Okay? They're delicious. Let's do it like that. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation, look at the syncretism, it's us, it's us, and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord, right, Saturday night, in our context, you're going to church tomorrow, praise the Lord, you're a Christian, it's incredible, and they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, they took communion and sang songs in multiple languages, nochal, unbelievable, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to commit sexual immorality. Uh, they rise up to play. That's what that's what happens. They go onto a pagan worship festival where they sleep with people who aren't their spouse. How many of us? We do all of the religious things, and then we rise up to play. And God strikes thousands of them down because He's not pleased. They seem to think that as long as they engage in the right religious activities, they are then free to worship idols and to live as they want. In the account in Numbers, the people of Israel engage in idol worship at Baal Peor and they engage in these weird fertility rituals and God sends a plague (laughs) on his own people. And Paul says, listen, Paul says, this is an example. We mustn't be like them and we're more likely to be like them than we think. All right, let's read on. Everyone okay? You're like, when can we have Ono back? (laughs) All right, verse nine. He's busy at BBC with his bow tie. (laughs) Just charming them. Just taking their money, no doubt. There's been three (laughs) offerings. You guys are loaded now. I can just see how this is going down. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. (laughs) See the image? Nor grumble, as some of them did and we're destroyed by the destroyer. Hey, we're like, yeah, sexual immorality, let there be death by snakes, right? Grumbling? Oh, that's a sin? South Africans? Grumbling? Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. It's a warning. Come on, guys. It's a warning. The second observation is this, I've only got three. The root of rebellion against God is idolatry. The root of our rebellion. So we to rebel against God, but at the root is our, of our rebellion is our idolatry. The issue isn't just a golden calf. There are other ways that idolatry can happen. And Paul references three, but he calls them all idolatry. He says sexual immorality, putting God to the test and grumbling. All three of those things are idolatry. Well, how can there be? Well, sexual immorality is choosing our own way to get physical satisfaction outside of trusting God. Saying, this need I have falls outside of the scope and parameters of my worship with God. And so I will go and fulfill this need any way that I want. And as I do that, I make an exchange. I take the immortal God and I say, no, thank you. And I take a mortal thing and I say, I'll have that instead. It's idolatry. It's idolatry. What about putting God to the test? Well, this refers to Numbers 21. When the people get tired of manna, can you believe the people of Israel? They're just like us. He feeds them every day. And after a while, they go like, really? Same food every day? Can't we mix this thing up? Some of them are like, I'm banting. So this bread thing, uh, problem, I get a bit bloated. Uh, I just don't feel that good when it happens. Can, can, we, can we mix this up a little bit? And so the people start to complain about God's provision in their lives. They want something other than what God has provided them. It's idolatry. How many of us have wanted things that God would not provide, and so we went to get it outside of the realm of his provision and discover that we end up worshiping something other than God, and it keeps us bound. It keeps us bound. I can't afford it. I'll finance it. Now I worship at its feet every month. Next one. Grumbling. Grumbling is what keeps most of the people of Israel from entering the promised land. God's like, it's the one thing I just, I can't deal with this, this, grumbling. Why? It's questioning the goodness of God. It's thinking we know better than him in terms of what is good for us, and so not resting in what he gives us or trusting in his plan for us. It's refusing to say, it is well with my soul, when it's not well with our circumstances. It's idolatry. It's saying, How I would figure out this situation is better than how you would figure out this situation. See it? It's an exchange. Now how many of us feel like we might be guilty of some idolatry? (laughs) John Calvin said, man's mind is like a store of idolatry and superstition. So much so that if a man believes his own, in his own mind, sorry, if a man believes his own mind, it is certain that he will forsake God and forge some idol in his own brain. (laughs) Even our thought processes lead to idolatry and away from the, the one true God. We're very gifted it seems at creating false gods and worshiping them. Paul's warning is, don't do this, be careful. Don't think you can keep on worshiping a God of your own making and mix that in with the blessings of covenant community of faith. Don't presume, be thoughtful, be awake, be repentant. Now you might be going like, this is too hard. How are we supposed to do this? Gosh, I love the next verse. Verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. Oh, Oh, thank you. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. How many of you feel like you recognize this verse? How many of you didn't know that it spoke about temptation? you thought it said God would not bring any circumstances in your life that you cannot handle. It doesn't. It doesn't. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 8, Paul says they faced trials that were totally beyond what they could handle or imagine. As a pastor, I see people all day carrying burdens I know they cannot carry. That's not what this verse promises. This verse promises that in the midst of that burden, they won't be tempted to idol worship in a way that they cannot handle. That they can still be holy in the midst of whatever they're going through. God is so, listen, oh, God is so caring towards us that he will not allow unrestrained temptation on his kids. After sinning, we can never in clear conscience say, I had no choice. We can never say that. Why? God is faithful. And so he doesn't set some kind of weird goalpost he knows we can't meet and then punish us for not meeting it. Firstly, he takes the punishment upon his son and then he gifts his Holy Spirit and then he restrains the evil one and says, I won't even allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear and then even when you sin, you're covered by the blood of my son and then even when you face it again, I give you my spirit and the devil is still restrained. Guys, the dice is loaded in our favor. But we must believe this and we must try to walk in the truth of this. Okay, so what's the choice? Look at this again. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, because there's an open door, flee from idolatry. All right, so last observation is this. God helps us to flee from idolatry, and so we should flee. He helps us to flee from idolatry. And so we should flee. He is faithful. Guys, I know every hipster in the world wants to tattoo their skin from top to bottom. If you wanna get one tattoo, I was saying to Sue today, if I was gonna get one, I would tattoo on my wrist somewhere or somewhere on my forehead maybe, just somewhere where I have to look. God is faithful. You know how powerful that is in Temptation. When I'm, when I'm tempted, I feel like I can't bear it. I feel like I just have to go with this. No, no, God is faithful. Then look up, find the open door and flee. Because if he's faithful, it's open and he'll give you the power to do it. But so often we just go with the flow. We just go with it. And then afterwards it's like, oh Lord, I don't know what I was thinking. We weren't thinking. We were being like the people of Israel. And Paul says, don't be like the people of Israel. Don't be in a covenant community where you don't strive to honor God and to please him. Guys, God gets an unfair reputation, I think. It's a, we, we make him out to be cruel and he's not. He isn't playing both sides of this game. He isn't setting us up for sin and then blaming us when, he, when we do. He's right there, offering us a better way and calling us to run or to flee away from those lies and offering to pay the price when we fail. <laughs> Everything's stacked against him. Everything in our favor. We just don't believe that image. All right. Friends, when you're tempted to sin and you've got the option to holiness or the option to idolatry, it's not saying to us that you're gonna miss out on cool stuff because God is some kind of cosmic grump. What he's saying is you have an opportunity to sprint from darkness and despair towards your loving father who is waiting for you and empowering you to run in the first place. Okay. Okay. Some of you, hopefully, feel lovingly warned today. I hope it's iron fist, velvet glove, okay? So it's like, oh, that feels, ow, all right? But, ow, oh, that was nice. Do it again, all right? And so uh, that's the, the message of the gospel that Paul always brings. Iron fist, warning, velvet glove, gospel, okay? And so I want you to change, but I also want you to rest in the good news of the gospel. I hope some of you feel lovingly warned today. I felt lovingly warned prepping this text. It's the idea of the text. So do something about it. Perhaps, friend, God isn't yet pleased with you because you don't know him yet. And so the best way to get the certainty of God's pleasure is to rest in the righteousness of his son. That is to say, God, I actually can't please you on my own. I need Christ. He paid for my sins. I believe that. I need his pleasing life. On my behalf. That's the good news of the gospel. You can get that, not through behaviour, through belief. Some of you feel lovingly warmed uh, and warned because you know you're living too comfortably with idolatry. You're part of the covenant community of faith. We don't doubt that. But you feel like the gap between what you believe about God and the way you behave towards him is large. Do something about it today. That's called repentance. Repentance isn't just sorry. Repentance is turning, and in turning, we close the gap. We go back towards the singularity of worshiping God above all other things. We confess the ways we worship other things, and then we return to the one true source. Some of you feel exhausted today. It's like you can't resist temptation, and so at some point, you've stopped, even trying. God is faithful. He's faithful. And so because of that, you're able to rest in his mercy towards you for your failings, but also you're able to flee temptation because he tells you that he'll, he'll help you. He tells you that he'll help you. Some of you have given in to a spirit of grumbling. Perhaps today is a day where you kind of just wave the white flag <laughs> and you say, God, okay, your way it's just better than mine. Soon I've been working this through in a circumstance in our life. And I've got to be honest, I've been telling God that he's wrong on something. It sounds ludicrous, but that's actually what I've been doing. God, that, that's okay, but I've got this plan and this one is significantly better and he's just continually gone, no, it's not. No, it's not. And at some point, unless my heart's going to grow hard like the people of Israel, I need to wave the flag and say, I'm going to stop grumbling and I'm going to start worshiping. I'm going to start trusting you. And so, friends, here's what we're gonna do. Like the people of Israel, this is beautiful, like they walked through the Red Sea, (laughs) we're, we're gonna walk to communion together, assured of God's covenant blessing. Like they picked manna off the ground as a reminder of God's faithfulness to them every day, we're gonna break bread as a reminder of God's faithfulness. That even though we are faithless, listen, Christ is faithful and God is faithful. And so when we eat the bread, we do it as an act of faith. Some of you don't feel worthy of eating the bread good. That probably qualifies you to do it. Repent of your sin. And as you eat the bread, I want you to remember, maybe even say, God is faithful. God is faithful. And then we're gonna drink the cup like the people of Israel drunk from the rock that was struck. Christ was struck for you. Christ was struck for you. So now you can please God. You can please him drink the cup. You know what I always do when I drink the cup? It's from Psalm 106. He says, I lift high the glass of my salvation. It's like proposing a toast to the Lord until he returns. And so with our elders and our elders meetings when we break bread, we lift high the cup of salvation and we say, this cup has nothing to do with me. <laughs> it's the blood of Jesus Christ and I propose a toast and say that until he returns, this blood covers me and allows me to live a new way. And so friends, that's a meal for Christians. If you're, if you're not sure you're a believer in Jesus Christ today, please don't partake in the meal. If one of the objections we have to Christians is hypocrisy, then let's not engage in it ourselves. But I'd love to chat to you. John, I would love to chat to you if you wanna find out more about Jesus or what it means to be his follower. For the rest of us, let's take a minute. Repent of our idolatry. The Holy Spirit will show you where it's creeping in and then go and enjoy. God is Faithful. Father God, thank you so much uh, for your word. If we remember nothing else, help us to remember just that simple phrase: God is faithful. Father, over 31 years of walking with your Son, I have found that to be absolutely true. Most days I am unfaithful, but you remain faithful. But Father, far be it from me then to then grab that assurance and to use it as an excuse for ongoing idolatry. That makes no sense. Surely if you're that good, that means I should worship you alone. And yet forgive me and us for the many times that we presume upon that grace and then use it to justify lifestyles where we worship things other than you. Let us not be ongoingly hard-hearted like the people before us who didn't see the promised land. But let us be, yes, sinners to be sure, but sinners committed to pleasing you because of the power of the Holy Spirit and because of the wonderful mercy of your son. We remember him now. We eat the bread it reminds us of his body and of your faithfulness. We drink the cup. We can't wait. (laughs) I can't wait for the day when we drink the cup at the wedding supper of the Lamb. And on that day, we will no longer be tempted. But until then, we lift our glass and we say, until you return, we live to please you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.